Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to the podcast that explores our place in time. This is episode 150, and I am very, very delighted to share with you today the third appearance on Future Fossils by my former graduate advisor and insane genius, Sean S. Bjorn Hargens, one of the most uh, ambitious and rigorous minds that I know, someone who has recently decided to put it all on the line, I guess in large part because he's no longer the head of an academic program and uh, can can take intellectual risks like the kind that he's taking. And to devote his formidable intellect to the problem of the UFO phenomenon and the just cornucopia of weird paranormal stuff that surrounds that phenomena. As Sean points out in this episode, as well as in his prior appearance on Future Fossils in episode 113, which I highly recommend if you want kind of a more abstract uh, philosophical introduction to this topic, the UFO rarely shows up on its own. It's frequently appearing in conjunction with fairies, Bigfoot, ghosts, all kinds of stuff. And yet, the way that we think about these is often oversimple. Uh, that, you know, people are trying to come up with a, me- a mechanical materialist explanation for Bigfoot that ignores the UFO. And, you know, as someone who works at the Santa Fe Institute where transdisciplinary research is lauded and encouraged, you know, I look at this as very similar to the way that everybody has some measure of disciplinary chauvinism in the sort of topside sciences. Physicists think that biologists aren't rigorous enough, that they're not quantitative enough. Biologists think physicists are, you know, missing something crucial about the evolutionary and uh, systemic nature of reality. And, you know, we just don't have time for that crap anymore. You know, the questions that we want to answer as a species require us to get out of our silos. And Sean is just exemplary in this regard. When when I first met him, he had just co-authored the book Integral Ecology with Michael Zimmerman at the University of Colorado, where he had found a framework through which to unify over 200 different disciplines of ecology. And he's done something very similar recently with his latest paper, Wild Cosmos, which is the distillation of over 650 books on the paranormal activities. And he's gotten further than anyone else I know into creating a formalized framework through which we can start investigating high weirdness in a way that, to borrow Ken Wilber's phrase, transcends and includes all of the previous modes that people have been using. So a very exciting conversation, and he's about to start an online program where he leads people through this in great depth with a honestly kind of daunting reading schedule. But uh, before we get into one of the most interesting conversations I've ever had on Future Fossils, I want to invite listeners to check out this show's page on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Michael Garfield, where I have been sharing unreleased writing 
writing and new music. Uh, some of the best stuff that I feel like I've ever done. Uh, I'm just not ready to piss it into the winds of social media quite yet. But yeah, new writing there on augmentation and cyborg anthropology, as well as uh, some new work that's inspired by artists like Elliot Smith and, and Bon Iver. I'm about to drop my first ever solo acoustic guitar EP in there. If folks are into like fretboard tapping, percussive guitar stuff like Michael Hedges or Khaki King, this will be a collection of short pieces that I've written over the last 20 years and finally, finally given a proper studio polish to. Uh, and then also we have the recordings from the Future Fossils Book Club. Uh, we're wrapping up our conversation about Lilith's Brood by Octavia Butler this Sunday. Still time to join us if you sign up. So anyway, thank you to everybody who has been supporting the show on Patreon. Your presence and the community we've created there are what motivates me to keep this show alive, demonstrates to me that it's not too weird for this world. So I want to thank new patrons Jason Murray, Gene, Leah Samuelson, and Liz Lambreau for joining up this week, and to everyone else who continues to support this program. All right. Thanks, everybody. Maybe I'll see you on Twitter at Michael Garfield or Instagram. Uh, if you want, email futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com and join our very thriving Discord server. And with that, I welcome back Sean S. Bjorn Hargens to talk about the unifying framework for weird phenomena. <laughs> Good, yeah, pretty good, all things considered. Given this crazy COVID world we're trying to figure out. Yeah, it's that's that's one sort of key feature that may or may not come into play in differentiating this conversation from the last conversation we had on on future fossils. I will say that I feel like as I've, you have probably discussed with your class that times as weird as these in which liminality has become a household word, right. I think open the conversation to weird phenomena in a way that was sort of previously foreclosed upon. Absolutely. It's, it's like weird has a whole new quality now. It's like weird is up close and personal. Like hanging out with my daughters 24 seven for six months is now in the category <laughs> of weird. <laughs> Well, it's like, in a way, or to twist that, was weird before, but maybe should not have been. Right. And, yeah, and now... Yeah. So you just got done talking to a class, right? Yeah, we just finished up the six-week What's Up With UFOs course um, that's based on the whatsupwithufos.com website that Tom Kern and I created over a, a year, it took us a whole year to put that thing together. And it pulls together 150 
um, assets, um, videos and articles, many of which we edited and repackaged to kind of get to the essence of what was being presented. And so all of that material is, is organized by four main categories, flying objects, hard science, direct experience, and institutional dynamics. And it takes about five to seven hours to work through all the articles and videos in each of those sections. So it's about 20, 25 hours for someone to go through it all if they just sat down and did a binge. And so the course was basically an opportunity for people who are working through that content to be able to talk about it with others and to just compare notes and and bring in new additional information and and tidbits. And so, yeah, we just finished that up and it was awesome. We had over a hundred people in the course, um, many of them coming from the integral community, which was great for me because it's fun to see people in that space talking about UFOs, which is, is, is weird in and of itself. So, <laughs> so it was, that was, that was very much a, um, what would you call that? Was that, is that persona non grata or bet noir or yeah, just off the table. Yeah. With, you know, Ken Wilbur. And I was just, I was just talking with Stuart Davis today, you know, cause he has the aliens mm-hmm. and artists podcast. Yeah. I didn't get to finish your episodes, but I started listening to them. And for listeners of this show, it's worth mentioning if you haven't gone, if you haven't listened to the first two episodes I did with Sean, Sean was my graduate advisor at John F. Kennedy University back in 2007 and eight and has thrown a number of extremely rigorous academic conferences on, you know, multiple perspectives on, on like a reconstructive postmodernism. And that's where this work is situated. But like at the time that we have first encountered one another, this was this and sort of all other weird phenomena were just not part of that discussion. And I remember the last time I saw you at the Integral Theory Conference in 2010, you mentioned that you were just starting to put together a meta theory of fairies and that this was, you know, and I was like, that was my first window into how truly uh, freaky you actually are. You know, so Stuart Davis, who was a, a, a major player in that scene also on the art, the creative artistic side, you know, he's like, yeah, it's so great to see Sean flying his freak flag at the top of the pole <laughs> these days. <laughs> and the wind is just throwing that thing all around. It just gets more and more freakish. Um, so, well, you I, know, yeah. Michael, you know, you're on the right path when you're going down a path that you don't recognize and that you yourself do not want to be on, but you find yourself there nonetheless. You know, to me, that's the sign that you're actually going in the right direction. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's a good place to start because like what I'd like to do this time is, you know, we've had two very sort of free flowing conversations, one about more about your like your organizational work in the business world, and then one about sort of popping the question on this conversation. But since then, you've put together this extraordinary document on the wild cosmos. Yeah. Um, and this document is very much a, a sort of academic thesis mm. and uh, it is so organized and so principled that it feels like we should really, I, I should rise to the occasion here. <laughs> right. And I, I threw the gauntlet down, Michael, are you <laughs> going to step up or what? Yeah. So like, well, you know, what, uh, what I would like to do is, is really kind of go through this in, in the order that you're presenting it to some degree. But I think the right place to start as, as 
I know you, you started with Stu, but you know, I'm not going to let him just like have this one is to talk a little bit about the experiences that led you into this question in your own life. And like, why were you compelled to explore these phenomena and to, to like leverage all of the work that you've done on uh, an integral meta theory to try and answer some of these questions in the first place? Yeah, great. So I was a good card-carrying integralist, and as part of that membership, I was a practicing Tibetan Buddhist and a practicing um, Diamond Heart student with A.H. Almas's um, approach. And, you know, those were two very common paths within the integral community, and partly because they're both very comprehensive and integrative in their own ways. And so they fit really well with the integral ethos and, and they kind of provide a nice experiential dimension to, you know, the largely intellectual academic work that I was doing with integral theory and, and meta theory in general. And I was very happy in both of those traditions. Um, I felt like I was home, that I would be there for the rest of my spiritual practicing days um, and has saw no reason why I would shift out of just deepening my engagement with both of those traditions. Then my daughter was born, and I'm sure you can relate to this in your own ways, how that becomes a wrecking ball in and of itself where, you know, life starts changing. So as a result of being a new dad with a young um, daughter, we were not able to attend all of the, you know, weekly, you know, the, the weekend retreats and the annual retreats that we'd been doing. And so I, I stopped formally practicing in both of those traditions. But I'm, you know, I'm at heart a seeker and, and you know, like to think of myself as a very serious meditator and practitioner. So I was left with kind of this existential spiritual void. And what started happening in that space, though, was I, I started noticing my interest in nature spirits and how I'd always had an interest in nature spirits and elemental beings and the intelli subtle intelligences associated with the natural world. Because, you know, as we talked about in prior episodes, you know, my work in integral ecology, you know, I've just spent a lot of time out of doors, outdoor education, um, and doing a PhD in environmental studies, essentially. So, I decided to follow this impulse, what I would equate to a soul impulse. And, and I basically said, all right, I'm going to give myself 10 years to really go down this path of, of working with fairy beings and elementals and devas and see what's there. Like I'm going to do the, the hermeneutic and I'm going to try and connect with the community of the adequate and, and understand like what are people experiencing when they're working in these subtle spaces and, and what are the realities that – and how do they discern between what they're experiencing and, you know, consensual reality? And how do they verify these different um, types of beings and all of that? And and as I began that process, you know, because in the integral space, like talking about magic or hermetics or the occult is just not part of that discourse so much. So I felt very much kind of out of sorts with exploring it. But the more I went into it, the more I found I was having experiences that for me were true and interesting and provocative. And, and so it, there was something there and I wanted to keep exploring it. And so the more I went into the inner earth, as it were, the more I was popping out the other side into the galactic realms and having encounters 
um, and experiences that I would think of as more extraterrestrial or extra dimensional. And, and this was like, like, you know, it's, it's one thing to talk about fairies. It's another thing to talk about fairies and aliens. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, you're just, you're like, just going farther and farther out on the limb. You hear the limb creaking. You're wondering about your, you know, wellness and, you know, the um, limb is a Mobius strip. <laughs> right. Exactly. But it's like, you know, at a certain point, you just have to go for it. And, and so I ended up having a set of experiences over these years that I didn't know how to reconcile because I was on the one hand having encounters with subtle beings I would associate with the natural world. And on the other hand, I was having encounters and experiences with subtle beings that I would, I associate with the galactic realm. And, and this was confusing because when you're hanging out with the UFO folks, they don't really want to talk about aliens unless they're equating. I mean, they don't want to talk about fairies unless they're equating them with aliens. Um, and when you hang out with the, the fairy folk, you know, they don't really want to talk about the UFO folks or, you know, aliens because they don't want fairies to be reduced to just modern day aliens. Right. So so you're in like two different groups of spiritual practice in a sense that really don't want anything to do with each other. And so I was being drawn and quartered by this. So, of course, my meta mind pops up and it's like, all right, let's start figuring this out. Like, what the hell is going on? Like, how, how do we make sense of these subtle realms and, and these different types of encounters with non-human intelligences? And that brings us to this point where I've written this 50-page article that kind of provides an initial offering as to some distinctions that might be useful with understanding some of those spaces. Yeah, and, you know, just to just to kind of make an observation about this, uh, I've, I felt has always been a kind of a semantic issue with uh, integral philosophies, yeah. plural. It really is about making these distinctions. And so it, you know, it's, it's sort of counter to a mathematical integral. <laughs> like it's, it's a differential, but then as you mention in a list of characteristics about this class or these classes of phenomena, one of them is about the sort of Mobius strip nature of, yeah. of this. And so, you know, that was, that was for me always the question that I felt was, unaddressed really or insufficiently addressed by the work of people like Ken Wilber, which is what lies at the heart or like in the center of his like four quadrant model. And like, it's, it's not enough to just simply casually be like, Oh, well, we don't have language for that. Right. And we discussed this a little bit in the last episode, you know, this, this notion that, that there needs to be a more rigorous ontology and epistemology to, you know, and we've got to find a way that, to join them. Um, so, and I think you're, I think you're doing this in this yeah. work. So it's, um, I guess maybe the correct place to start would be to talk a little bit about your move to try and offer a more intricate and helpful taxonomy for these, uh, these phenomena, which are just, uh, as you've kind of already mentioned, so incredibly diverse that it has been difficult in in the community studying them to try and settle on one answer that works for all of these different 
phenomena. And like, again, like in the last time you were on the show, we talked a little bit about this, uh, the case study that you provide in this paper on the Skinwalker Ranch, and which is just like a cornucopia of (laughs) like random, seemingly random, weird stuff that just consistently challenges any efforts at categorization. So, so how are you coming at this now? You know, let's, let's talk about some of those distinctions that you're making. Great. And I, I like to think of it as I'm my project, in a sense, is one of trying to provide expressive capacity. Like, what are useful distinctions that allow us to have conversations that we're not able to have without those distinctions that actually gets us closer to the truth? All right. <laughs> should, should I repeat that? <laughs> no, actually, I think that was kind of, uh, I don't know, that was like a, a highlighter on okay. what you were saying there. Okay, yeah. good. Nice. Some synchronicity here yeah. <laughs> being supported by the universe. And for me, I love Skinwalker Ranch as a case study because it very quickly gets us right in the heart of the question what is reality? Like, what is going on here? Like, how is this possible? Like, how can you have UFO sightings, Bigfoot sightings, poltergeists, um, A-ports, you know, material objects disappearing and showing up in other places, you know, all of these things and more in a way that seemingly seems real, right? Like, you know, if you and if you combine it with other research, with other paranormal hotspots, it's not that these are hallucinations. These are actual real experiences that are occurring and, and many people are having them. So starting from there, it's kind of like, I feel like all hands on deck. And, and so I'm not just satisfied with the literature and the, the UFO space. And so I then go to the academic space. I go to the paranormal and esoteric space. I go to the space studies. So, so part of the approach that I'm developing with exostudies is metadisciplinary in that I'm drawing on over 150 different disciplines and, and have a reading list of 650 books that I'm drawing on to try and make sense of all of this. Um, and like, what are the new approaches to animism have to say? What are the new approaches to feminist views on materialism have to say? You know, what, what does the ontological turn in anthropology give us to better understand this dynamic? What are some of the more interesting emergent theories of quantum mechanics and how it interfaces with consciousness have to say? What's the leading edge of understanding the role conspiratorial psychology plays in in belief formation and how that then interferes with our ways of interpreting phenomenon? Um, you know, so it's kind of like, and it's endless, like there's so many, you know, and then the, the year long program that I'm starting in September has 42 topics that we're going into kind of in, in this way. And, and really at the heart of it is like, what's up with reality? Like, how can we make sense of these phenomena? And, and part of it is like, I love the work of um, Jack Hunter, who is bringing a paranormal approach to anthropology. And he has this concept of ontological flooding which is essentially taking at face value what's being reported to you by witnesses um, or indigenous people or people who are saying something that otherwise seems like impossible and assuming that what they're saying actually is more or less the truth and it is real. And so starting from that place and then bringing kind of a sophisticated, you know, scientific intellectual approach opposed to what's more common, which is the phenomenological bracketing where you bracket out any claim to truth or reality or, or the thing in itself, 
um, and and just kind of talk about our experience or perception of phenomena. Um, I'm interested in like pushing the boundary and actually saying, let's make some ontological claims. Let's actually talk about what reality is and how can we do that? Because to me, it's not a question of whether these things are real or unreal. It's like, what do we mean when we say they're real? Like, in what sense are they real? And this, you know, one of the entry points for this in the article is the whole issue of entity encounters, right? Because when you go into the abduction literature, for instance, there's five main types of beings that show up over and over again. You have mantis beings or insectoids. You have the tall and, and short grays um, or sometimes tall whites. But um, you have humans, human-looking entities, um, and you have the um, reptoids you know, or reptilians that show up on a regular basis. So in the abduction scenarios, you often have you know, people encountering two, three, four, or all five of those types of beings. When people are on DMT, it's not uncommon for them to also encounter all of those beings and more, right? And and then they're also encountering machine elves. Then when you go into the fairy lore and you look at the descriptions of the gnomes and the fairies and the elementals, you know, they're described differently than the machine elves, but there's enough similarity that you start, you know, you know, and I've heard ayahuascan shamans talk about the grace showing up in the sacred circle and they just tell the grace to go away because this isn't for them, right? So, so what you start to discover in the encounter literature is people are encountering the same kind of set of beings across all these categories, right? And and so it, it just raises this issue of like, what are these subtle realms and how are they overlapping? And how is it that people who are having out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, psychedelic experiences, meditation experiences, lucid dream experiences, that the phenomenological descriptions that are occurring across those literatures are pointing to a highly inhabited wild cosmos, right? And that there's there's some consistencies and there's some interesting differences across that space that to me lends to the the point where I have to take very seriously that we're surrounded by all kinds of intelligences that we don't normally see or understand or know how best to communicate with or or interact with, right? And so so the meta approach is is trying to get a sense of like, why is no one drawn on the history of philosophy and our philosophical tools around ontological analysis, epistemological and methodological analysis to kind of triangulate, to say something useful about the paranormal? Because it seems to me the paranormal provides us a, a direct path into starting to answer and engage some of these big questions about what is the nature of reality. And so why has the paranormal been left off the table in any initiative to try and understand reality? You know, and so that's kind of the core impulse um, that's coming through me. Yeah. You know, just uh, a couple thoughts that this brings up. One is that the, pro- the you know, the process that you're describing here of humility in, in asking these questions and what you, you know, what you, uh, what you call ontological flooding. Yeah. Um, that, you know, there's, you know, Jer- Jeremy Narby's very popular account, The Cosmic Serpent, where, you know, he's an anthropologist going down into the Amazon and the, the uh, tribal peoples of the Amazon who, whom he is there to help preserve their knowledge so that they can basically register it as intellectual property and protect themselves against corporations that are trying to harvest their, their knowledge for various reasons. Um, 
this, the story that he keeps getting from them is that they're like, Oh, how did you figure out that the plant was good for this treating this particular condition? And they're like, Oh, the plant told me. Right. And he's like, no, that can't be. And that, that, you know, that, so that's, that's really one, one, you know, very, um, well-referenced example of how profound a difference it makes when, when you're able to, um, free yourself of this. What I don't, you know, I think a lot of people don't recognize specifically but for sure is a a like colonial mindset where it's not just about taking someone's land it's about taking their account of reality and replacing it with your own um and then you know this is on display this always annoyed me uh this is on display really uh quite fiercely with uh, a statements that um Richard Dawkins made about Our Lady of Fatima Mm. and how you know he's like well Obviously, it was a mass hallucination, you know, because science, and he said in Unweaving the Rainbow, which is otherwise a very, very excellent book, but there was that one line in there where he says, science is not, it is not the onus of empirical science to address these questions. And so, you know, there's this whole thing about, um, you know, in the the community of the brights, you know, this sort of uh, scientistic uh, scene that we have now, um, that there is not even wrong you know, because it's not, you cannot subject it to an empirical, uh, methodology. But I, I don't think that's right, actually. You know, I think, it, you know, you make a really good case and many others do. Uh, you know, you reference, uh, Jeff Kripal in this a lot. You reference, um, uh, you know, there's, yeah, there's lots of this, like you said, like 650 books. Um, but, uh, you know, some of these folks that have, started to you know uh sort of make a name for themselves in an emerging academic like rigorous academic discipline around the weird uh including my buddies you know phil ford and jf martell uh, weird studies podcast are doing a really good job of pulling on on these threads um yeah and you know, JF was just on stewart's um podcast yeah yeah i need to listen to that one too so um there is uh, you know, it's, I, I think you, you point to something really important here, which is that, uh, imp- it, we don't actually know what the limits of empiricism are here because if we foreclose, you know, there's something that I've, I've had this model for years about, uh, it was just sort of based on my studies with you about the, um, and, and the paper that you wrote with Ken Wilber on, like on on the developmental levels of of scientific right methodology yeah. and how like zen counts right as science you know but that it's 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 employing a different uh, allowable data set in its its practice right. and that so you know like i you know i thought about how in a way fundamentalist religion is a sort of science, but the only admissible data is whatever's inside the sacred text and everything else is thrown out. And, and then we get to, uh, you know, the, the rational enlightenment and that data set is the, the so-called five senses, but then anything beyond you know, anything that might be in the, the like 16 senses as recognized by Michael Murphy's future of the body yeah. Does not count. You know, there's 11 senses that you're just throwing out. And, and part of this has to do with, I think, this balance between, um, the, you, I guess I think about it in like, like computing terms that there is 
uh, only so much that someone can hold at a time. There are metabolic costs. And Eric Davis has talked about this, about, you know, that, that, you know, when he talks about metabolic ontology, mm. that, you know, w- what he's saying is that, you know, uh, access to an expanded consciousness through um, a meditative practice or a psychedelic experience affords us a window of opportunity in which we are able to allow additional evidence because we're, we, we're, we're like, we have access to sort of more, more computing cycles or something. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it, it seems like we're at a point in history where, uh, you know, the threshold there is the point at which you stop allowing evidence is the point at which a story precipitates and we like, we fall back into a sort of, you know, narrative mythic structuring of things. Um, and so, so anyway, you know, you, um, I think I, I have a lot of hope is, you know, to like tie a bow on this. I have a lot of hope that, uh, the more nuanced and sophisticated and multidimensional our analyses, um, the more, the, the greater the access to information, you're like a living example of this, you know, um, the, the more obvious it is that patterns are not just mm-hmm. anomalous and can be dismissed. And, uh, the more we can come together in sort of collective computations, uh, you know, socially on this issue, uh, the scope of what we consider modern science is going to expand to include a lot of stuff that it previously denied. And, you know, the question, I I do not believe that not even wrong is a fixed point basically. Mm -hmm. And so at any rate, that that's like, that's my way of ramping into your very nuanced distinctions around, as you've already said, what is, what is real? uh, What is an object and then what is evidence? And I, I, I would love for you to pull these apart and, and, uh, show them off for people yeah. in the order that you present them in this text. Great. Cool. Yeah. So a couple of things to set the stage. Part of what I'm interested in is, you know, Philip Descala has written a book called Beyond Culture and Nature. And he's an anthropologist, French, um, done his work in the Amazonia. And in it, he presents a typology of four major ontologies. And one of them is the kind of naturalism, which is kind of our Western view that there's one singular nature and there's many um, subjectivities, which is kind of the view that um, there's all these different interiorities that are then kind of looking at the same nature. Right. And that the and so this gives rise to what we think of as kind of, you know, modern scientific focus on the singular nature and the postmodern focus on kind of cultural relativity and so forth. What he points out is that that's just one particular ontological story or or way of, of making sense of the relationship between the one and the many in the animist traditions. It's it's inverted where there is a singular interiority. Um, everything has interiority. Everything is a person, or most things, many things are have personhood. Um, but there are many bodies and many worlds, right? So in that in that context, there's not a singular nature. There's multiple ontologies or multiple worlds and realities. Um, but everyone has, you know, uh, agency and personhood. And so it's, it's almost the exact opposite. And in many ways is the direct 
opposite set of polarities than what our kind of Western naturalism um, presents. And then there's two other ontologies, and I won't get into those. But the point is, when you read that work and you realize that there's these four major different ways of kind of dividing the one and many pie into different ontological, epistemological understandings, and that the Western one is just one of four, then I go, what's the meta-ontology? Like, wh- how are all of these, what are the all of these uh, uh, an expression of? Like, and how do we get at that? Like, how do we talk about that? And part of what I love about the UFO space and the paranormal space is there's a way in which I almost situate it in the center of this typology because the phenomena shows up and sometimes it shows up as a naturalistic ontology, sometimes it shows up as an animistic ontology, sometimes it shows up as the other two ontologies. And so it's like the phenomena doesn't adhere to just our Western scientific naturalist view of things. And that's why it's so confusing and that's why it's so disorienting and why it gets set aside. But I feel like those these are the, the breadcrumbs of weirdness that lead us down the path in the forest to actually finding the hut right? And opening the door and discovering who or what is in the hut, right? And so this, so I'm having to kind of revamp, what do we mean by evidence? Because there's, the UFO phenomena has what I call doubleness, or you could say tripleness. But the idea is that it contains paradoxical um, qualities simultaneously. And examples of that is that it appears inside and outside, um, it's, you know, it's dreamlike, but it leaves physical trace evidence, you know, it's like, and so it's, um, it's trickster, it's, you know, it's Mobius, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's has all these qualities that confuse us because we're trying to adhere to this scientific naturalist orientation. When you look at the, and so there's this paradox where you'll have people in the UFO community say there's a lot of evidence. And then you have people like Richard Dawkins saying there's no evidence or all hallucination, right? And the Fatima example is interesting because it's one of the most well-documented examples of a a paranormal event that's like, I don't even know how you could even talk about it as a hallucination if you really look at the historical data around it. But anyways. The burden burden of trying to explain that scientifically is actually quite great. It's it's understandable that one would shrink from such a responsibility. For sure. Um, And so, so I found as I looked at like, what are the different definitions of evidence that when you look at a court of law, there's like over a dozen different kinds of evidence that can be used to prosecute, right? Um, and when you look at the scientific method, there's like three or four or five different kinds of evidence that are often talked about, like at a meta level kind of. Um, and what I've noticed is that in terms of UFO evidence and extraterrestrial evidence, there is a ton of legal evidence, like tons of it. It's like, so like if, if we, if we, if I had to take this case to court, like, you know, I think I would win, like, you know, with a, a fair impartial jury, like the, the, the exhibit A through 1000 is so, you know, there's so much evidence that it's just like, like case closed. But then it's interesting because when you get to scientific evidence, it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder to, to make the case that there's scientific evidence um, because the phenomenon doesn't adhere to a lot of the protocols of the scientific method in the ways that we would like. Like it doesn't repeat itself. Like it's, it, it, it's, uh, it doesn't do well in laboratory settings, you know, like, so, so there's a way in which it's asking us to up level our scientific game. Right. So, so I find it's an interesting kind of 
you know, gap that there's so much legal evidence and not as strong scientific evidence. And so I think we have to re-envision what we mean by evidence. So I'm working on kind of a typology of evidence to show all the different kinds of evidence there are and which kinds there are less of. Because, you know, basically when someone like, you know, Dawkins says there's no evidence, they're pointing to one of like 20 different types of evidence that, you know, they're talking about a publicly verifiable, repeatable kind of evidence. And yeah, in that sense, it's fair to say there's no evidence, right? Or at least that's a respectable position. But when you look at all the other kinds of evidence, legally and scientific, there's tons, right? There's um, psychological evidence, there's anthropological evidence, there's archaeological evidence, there's physics evidence, there's first-person testimony, there's sociological evidence. There, I mean, it just the list goes on and on. And so it's just, it's so fascinating th- that the taboo around this topic is such that we're not able to more systematically investigate and explore these dynamics. Well, you know, just just as a, a a kind of pin into this, because I'm living now in the mothership, if you will, of complex system science, right? At SFI, this is also part of why it has been so difficult for SFI and complexity science in general to click right. with the the incumbent scientific community, yeah. because when we're talking about I mean, not even weird or paranormal phenomena, but simply complex phenomena that are um, dependent, you know, sensitive to initial conditions, are um, they're path dependent, you know, on like the way that they unfold in time, you know, has their their multiple scales. So, you know, they're the the level of granularity at which you examine the phenomena determines, you know, your ability to understand it. And, you know, lots of stuff is sort of below the threshold of of our ability to actually uh, observe and record things. And so you end up where the principal methodology of complex system science is modeling or simulation. And this is not, um, you know, this is not a reproducible in the way that is comfortable to the, you know, the way that we have been taught about science in high school, you know, even though it's extraordinarily practical. And this kind of gets back to this sort of indigenous ways of knowing and like the, the, you know, the, the, the Curandero's approach to what is real and what is evidence, right? Because it's, you know, there's a pragmatism here, which, you know, again, you, you know, you call on William James very early in this, right. you know, and, and, you know, his, his approach to ontological pluralism, which I, I think we might have discussed on the last time you were on the show, but this, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's about, you know, there's a way in which you can reproduce the conditions of an agent based model and then you can run it twice on two different computers and you can get similar enough results that you can say, okay, this is workable in the real world. And this is what's going on right now with the coronavirus pandemic. You know, we have people working with the CDC that are um, using extremely dense, high dimensional simulations and, and, you know, this is another, this is, again, this is sort of, uh, if you will, the, you know, the sort of the Cain and Abel or Christ and set of the, you know, to the children of science, the split, uh, 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 family tree here. Um, one is complex system science and the other is machine learning and machine learning has a very similar, but kind of like reciprocal problem, yeah. which is that we know it works, but we don't know how. 
And so, yeah. So at any rate, you know, I think that it's, it's important, I think, to understand that like when this is not a class of phenomena to which these problems are unique. And it's also the case that like, uh, you know, you talk a lot about the sort of mind matter piece of this and like we're facing an extreme reproducibility crisis in psychology right now right. also you know right. so this is this is you know in a way i feel like um the work that you're doing is giving all of these other sort of more conventional disciplines better ground to stand on you know or like yeah. it's giving people a way to address problems in science that are not merely problems about the UFO phenomenon or ghosts or Bigfoot, but are problems about the human mind and are problems about the way that we think about, um, like, like we, you have already said, simply the way that we classify reality, you know? So, um, totally. Yeah. And I'm glad you're making this connection. Cause I think there's a lot of links between the complexity sciences and how they just boggle the minds of kind of more traditional mainstream types of scientific investigation. And, and you're right. It's almost like by going into the heart of the weird and trying to figure out how do we say something meaningful about it and, and how do we need to change our scientific approach to match the phenomenon and not try and force the phenomenon into the categories and constraints of easy science that, that by doing that and kind of figuring that out, I think you're absolutely right. It gives a lot of kind of more, you know, mainstream, but like the complexity sciences as a great example, more mainstream approaches to challenges, um, a lot of tools from which to, you know, further their own efforts. And this is particularly important in a post-truth era that we're in, right? Like it's interesting with climate change, climate change is really abstract. And so, you can kind of understand why people would be denying it and fighting about it and going back and forth because um, it, it requires a, a capacity for a time horizon that a lot of people just don't have. And But when you talk about the coronavirus and like there's – I see these articles, you know, every few days about some person who has just died from the virus who two months ago posted on their Facebook page that it was a hoax, right? And so there's consequences Right. You know, so so like how do we how do we develop a more sophisticated, integrative meta science of the paranormal such that it actually helps all these other approaches to scientific, you know, initiatives that are struggling with, you know, kind of fitting into the old school scientific paradigm, which is so broken and has been so discredited. And yet somehow we're still culturally committed to it in some bizarre way. Yeah. So, you know, we can't have this conversation without tipping our glasses to or raising our glasses, tipping our hats to Charles Fort. Mm. And, you know, you bring up um, his notion from the 1920s of ontological indeterminacy, which takes the position that nothing is real, but that nothing is unreal. Yeah. All phenomena are approximations one way or the other between realness and unrealness. So you use this as a way of opening up yeah. an exploration of, of what is real. And you, you offer a couple uh, or a, a handful of uh, sort of subtler distinctions. I guess this is uh, Brian Sentis yeah. fourfold distinction. And so this is, this is, I think worth addressing here. Yeah. So, you know, and it's interesting because it started with my climate change paper in 2010 on the ontology of climate change, where in that context, I'm looking at the notion of multiple ontologies and, and the idea that 
climate change as like a hyper object, a la you know Timothy Morton, and that it's it's such a different kind of object that we can't think of it in a typical kind of singular, simple location sense, and that it's such a big dynamic object that transcends time and space in unique ways that different methodologies in measuring climate change from one vantage point or another kind of enact a subset of the total reality labeled climate change. And therefore you sometimes get, you know, meteorologists and oceanographers and, and, you know, and sociologists talking about and relating to climate change very differently. And sometimes you even wonder if they're talking about the same thing. Right. And, and, and so in, in trying to understand all the, the debate around whether or not climate change is happening or not, that actually took me down the road of trying to understand the notion of ontological multiplicity and like how might we expand from requiring a singular ontology to how do we talk about multiple ontologies and what does that mean? Does that mean we're all living in different worlds or are they overlapping in different ways or how do we enact and call forward different ontological realities based on our psychology and our history and our karma and our methods and our way of being in the world? So Charles Fort's very fascinating in this because of his whole idea of ontological indeterminacy really resonated with me that this phenomenon is both subjective and objective. It's both imaginal and physical. It's like, as, you know, Kripal talks about a mythical object and a mythical object is basically a story that has a physical dimension to it. It's one way to think about. It. So it's like, imagine an a union archetype as a UFO that somehow is able to generate radar returns. So it's simultaneously kind of, a, you know, a psychosocial phenomenon but it's, it has such power that it's showing up in our physical world and leaving physical traces in a way that's very confusing to us. So, so Fort talks about this idea that this phenomenon is basically kind of moving in and out of reality. It's kind of like manifesting and dematerializing is, and that all phenomenon is on this continuum of real and unreal. And that, you know, and, and so this opened me up to thinking about making sense of the exophenomenon this way. Though I add a twist to Fort's thing, which, and instead of having unreal on one end and real on the other, I came up with three spectrums in trying to kind of put a little meat on on the Fortean bones of what that spectrum might look like. And so I created three spectrums. One is what I call the ontological stations spectrum, which are like four different realms or realities from subjective to objective with intersubjective and interobjective in the middle. So this is one spectrum and different beings are born or originate in different realms, and they can actually move across that spectrum in different directions, right? So you can have a thought form, right, that starts out in the subjective realm, and through occult practice and ritual and concentration and intentionality, that thought form can actually become an intersubjective being that other people experience and interact with, all of the experiment conjuring Philip that occurred, you know, back in the day. And then, you know, those, these tupas, to use a Tibetan term for them, actually can then, in a sense, manifest in the real world and even have physical expression. And, and then you have to bring in like kind of a, a crisis team of occultists to basically mentally deconstruct this phenomena so that it stops running around causing problems, right? So it's an example of something that starts in the mind and literally becomes a manifest physical being of some sort. Then what's interesting, so you have this one spectrum. The other spectrum is what I call ontological sovereignty, 
or the free will spectrum that goes from non-autonomous to semi-autonomous to autonomous, right? So a tulpa, for instance, starts out non-autonomous. It, it's it's basically a creation of your own powerful imagination, but there's experiences and examples that seems to suggest that they become semi-autonomous or possibly even completely autonomous in some sense. You know, you can think of the work of uh, Alistair Crowley and with Lamb and some of these things, you know, and like calling in and evoking these, you know, like, so, so then you have the spectrum of from non-autonomous to autonomous. The third spectrum is what I call the ontological substance or density spectrum, which is basically about the body. Are they a light body? Or are they a subtle energetic body? Or are they a physical body? Now, we generally in kind of contemporary consensual culture, we identify what's real as being on one end of each of these spectrums. It's objective. It comes from an objective context. It's autonomous and it's gross and physical in its body. So this is in a sense kind of what we generally mean by something's real. If something's subjective, non-autonomous or causal or energetic, it's not real. So in that sense, I actually, my spectrum is like real and real opposed to forts, which is unreal and real. So all three of these spectrums are real to real, but it's like, so, so it's just as real if it's subjective, semi-autonomous and subtle energetic as if it's a causal light, autonomous, objective being, you know, so, so it gives us a matrix, an ontological matrix to start to t- have a different conversation about light orbs turning into Sasquatch, right? Or Sasquatch turning into light orbs, you know, or ET craft being physical and then turning into some energetic phenomenon and then zipping out in a blink of an eye. Cause I feel like we don't have a good way of, of talking about in what ways are these things real and not real. And to me, it's not that they're not real. They all are real. It's more about how do we have a set of distinctions that allows us to talk about the ways they are real. Um, because they're, if you even use like James's notion of truth, of pragmatic truth, that these things have causal effect. They're, interacting and influencing the world and yourself, right? So in, in that theory of truth, it's, they're all real, right? So I, I really want to get out of the binary that we're stuck in with, you know, Western Civ, you know, and kind of the real unreal, because, you know, if you really do the ontological flooding practice and you take serious what these indigenous cosmologies are telling us, you take serious the half a million people who have had abduction experiences, you take serious the, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who have had, you know, physical encounters with Sasquatch, you know, like if you really open yourself up to what that material is telling us, then you have to say that, wow, fairies are real aliens are real and angels are real. And then it's kind of like, holy shit. Well, what's not real? Like it's almost as if everything that we think is not real actually is real. And then it gets really interesting and very fun and exciting to go like we live in a wild cosmos that's inhabited by multitudes of intelligences that we're, we only barely have a sensibility around. Yeah. So, you know, listening to you talk about this, I've, I've had a couple of, deep conversations with folks over the years about what I would call like kind of mundane examples of what you're talking about. I think it was in Futurama, the mm-hmm. cartoon where I'm trying to remember if this is where, where I heard this, they were talking about how there's an argument that Batman is more real than you, mm-hmm. Sean Hargens, right. because Batman 
you know, in the Tim Morton sense as yeah. a, a quote unquote yeah. hyper object is something that has a greater spatiotemporal extension and greater mass, you know, all of the Batman merchandise that's ever been made, you know? And so like Batman is, or, or, you know, the Jeff Kripal thing about a mythic object, the, the you know, that you just described, you know, this is something that ori- originated in the mind of one person and then became more autonomous as it seeded mimetically into other people and developed into this thing. And we're seeing this now, you know, this is a really interesting twist in the the turn that pop culture has taken over the last few decades where, you know, like we're seeing this with Star Trek now, for example, where it's, it went from being one, maybe two television shows at a time to now they're talking about putting on like something like six concurrent TV shows with all with different showrunners. And so everyone is taking this ball and running with it in a different direction and bringing their own life and mind to it and giving it something else. And it's becoming a much more heterogeneous phenomenon than it used to be. It's much less the province of you know, Gene Roddenberry and whoever he sort of bequeaths as trustworthy to handle this, the phenomenon of fan fiction, you know? And so there's, there's a, um, there's, there's a sense in which arguably a, a way that you're not, you know, in a way more real, you like, you've kind of just demolished that, but there's ways in which we're getting different kinds of real when something moves into the, the fan verse. Yeah. You know, or moves, you know, we're, we're like, we're, we're sort of authorizing fan fiction. And so you, there's like a kind of like, uh, imaginal genocide that Disney yeah. commits when they destroy the Star Wars extended universe, when they take over the property and they say, no, 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 no. We're, go- we're going to de-Pinocchio this. Right. You know, we're going to make this ours again. And you don't get to, you know, your stories are non-canonical. And they don't even exist anymore. But there's, there's another piece, which, you know, this is more of the, you know, in, in keeping with your meditation practice and, you know, the, the conversation in like Neo Advaita Vedanta, where, you know, this, the self is regarded as a fiction. And so, you know, when we're talking about things being both real uh, or like real in the conventional way and fictional, then what we're talking about includes I think fairly conclusively and rigorously and in a way that modern science is not ignoring and is not dismissing the ego, the personality, you know, the sense that, um, you know, we are now completely comfortable in Silicon Valley talking about this as a sort of illusion. And so we see, I think it's like part of why we see so many tech billionaires engaged in these Ozymandian projects, you know, like (laughs) Bezos and, and blue origin. Like, you know, if I, if I can seed the cosmos, if I can be the linchpin at the bottleneck of, of our extraplanetary history, then I'm somehow more real. You know, it's part of that sort of on that immortality project that the ego has always been engaged in. And so I think that, you know, your, your framework again is not just applicable to paranormal phenomena, but it reveals the ways in which the things that we take for granted as the the mundane, unquestionable everyday realities are themselves kind of paranormal. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And this is why I love Kripal. You know, he does such a great job of highlighting the ways in which what you write can take on a life of its own. He talks about authors of the impossible. And if you just look at like Keel's book, Mothman Prophecies, 
he gives an example early in that book of an author who wrote a ton of stories. And one of the main characters that shows up across the stories is called the shadow. And the shadow always wears a, a, a long coat and a hat, dark, you know, brimmed hat. And it's always in the shadows. And, and so what's interesting is after the author moves out of that house where he wrote a lot of the books, then people move into that house and they basically start describing a ghost-like figure. They had no idea who lived there before and what that person did, but they start describing a shadow-like figure who's basically haunting the house. And so the question then starts to come. It's like, did this author write that character into existence? Like, is that essentially a trupa, right? And so your point about Batman is like, it, yeah, this is what we're talking about, that Batman is real, right? And and it's like in, in a number of different ways, because one of the things that comes out of the occult traditions is that when there's enough collective awareness around something, it creates its own kind of reality. And so if you take the work of J.R.R. Tolkien in Middle Earth, that two things. One, there seems to be good reason that he tapped into um, either the Middle Earth history on the fourth dimension of our Earth and basically was channeling that in a sense, or he was tapping into the galactic elves on Syria and was channeling that. And so there's a way in which he's actually describing a real reality in, a, in some other dimension. Um, and then it's obviously getting filtered through his literary prose, but it's essentially a finger pointing to a real moon, right? So there's the truth of Tolkien's world in that sense, right? And then there's also the ways in which, because of the cultural phenomena like Batman you were talking about, we've actually collectively created Middle Earth as a subtle dimension that actually exists. And people have had experiences going there and interacting with beings and some of the characters that are there. So, so we bring these Roto lives. I know, it, yeah. it does, as, as does Sarnon, you know, so you gotta be careful. Um, so it's like, this is where like the, it, like the literal becomes literal, right? The literary becomes literal, right? So we are dealing with more dynamic domains of consciousness than we realize like there's a lot more interesting things going on um than than what we often realize and you know we're also this interesting moment like with you know musk taking us to mars in the next 10 years like we're becoming a galactic human right and and the full extent of what that implies and means like we're not even really aware of but it's like it's, it's creeping up on us like you know in, in 10 years we're going to be terraforming mars so we're going to have a base on the moon it's like we're being confronted with galactic consciousness and part of galactic consciousness is coming to terms with our galactic history and when you look at our galactic history as a species it gets really bizarre really fascinating really overwhelming Right. Because there's a lot of good reasons to think that we are a hybridization project of dozens of different um, intelligences and that Earth like humans go back millions of years to a number of different star systems. And we're just one colony out of many, in a sense. Right. And, and there's a lot more to say. But but when you just start opening up your mind to these possibilities, again, the whole real, not real, it's like it, it just doesn't make any more sense. So it's kind of like. How do we become epistemologically reflexive, have methodologies that are pragmatic, and have an ontology that's 
can match the diversity of experiences and realities that we seem to be encountering. Yeah, you know, I, I want to linger for a moment on you brought up the post-truth reality. And fans of this show have heard me talk about this novel, Charles Strauss's Accelerando, numerous times. You know, I think it's just a, a, a remarkably astute and prophetic work of science fiction. And one of the things that they, that happens in the third act of the book is that humans who have been driven off planet by our artificial intelligences optimizing for computing power and have basically devoured Earth and replaced it with, you know, uh, computers that are creating some giant transcendent ineffable simulation. We're basically refugees at the edge of the, the solar system and people start showing up from the inner solar system to our refugee camp that are not us that are like historically they're either historical figures like Abraham Lincoln or it's like Spider-Man or, you know, and, and there's like a whole, you know, you, when you arrive at the human colony at the edge of our solar system, you get a message, you you know, you have like, a, there's like a, you know, an Ellis Island where it's like, if you suspect yourself of being a fictional character, please report yourself yeah. to city exactly. authorities. And so, you know, I was just thinking about this in terms of, you know, episode 91 of the show is like the one I talk about the most about, you know, an oral history of the end of reality and deep fakes. And this question of the machine driven tulpa, you know, the, the idea that, you know, just today I found a website. I mean, I think a lot of people have probably already heard of this person does not exist.com mm. where they've, they, they're doing photographs, seemingly photographs of, of faces that are actually just generated by, um, adversarial networks. Yeah. And so it looks convincingly like somebody that I would try to like hit on. You know, but she, she was, she has never existed in, in like flesh and blood. But then of course, it's easy to imagine, you know, in a hundred years that you can 3D print her. Yeah. You know, and this is the, this is why I got stuck on Blade Runner 2049 for as long as I did with this show. But like just today, I saw another website called this word does not exist.com, which is words. That are, I mean, it's, this computationally sounds much easier, but it's just conlanging like, neologisms mm. that were generated by machine learning networks. And some of them are extremely on point. So, you know, a lot of it's just noise and garbage, but a lot of it is words that I can imagine being taken up mm. into the English language, you know, and actually used. And I, I was sending it to some friends that, you know, that, have indulged with me over the years in both weird phenomena, extraterrestrial sightings and so on, as well as this kind of recombinant, you know, like the, the synthesis of new molten terrain upon which we may one day culturally stand. So it's like, I, you know, there's, there's another piece of it, which I think this really gets to the, you know, the heart of what you're talking about here, because, you know, you'd look at all of the different, the 10 different hypotheses you identify as, you know, having dominated the paranormal and UFO discourse. And then you, you synthesize an 11th, the mutual enactment hypothesis, which I think, you know, allows us to, to start to think seriously about what happens when the machines dream up a new reality for us to inhabit or where, you know, we ourselves, you know, you, you give some examples of, you know, a class of encounters where people are reporting that their conversations with these strange entities are that we are ghosts haunting them, you know? And so like, this is the, this is the sort of infinity loop I, I want to go into here with you now. 
Yeah, and this brings us back to the fourfold kind of notion of the real that you mentioned from Brian Senti's work, and he builds that off of a number of other philosophers. And you know his um, his blog is you know Skunk Works, and so definitely check out his stuff. It's great. Um, he pulls together kind of from a number of different people these these four different words: the real, lowercase, the real, uppercase, the hyper real, and the hypo real. And the real is just our everyday, take it for granted, consensus reality, right? Um, whereas the real with capital R is essentially, you know, intrusions on the real lowercase, um, such as a UFO or encounter with a non-human intelligence that really radically alters our worldview um, and kind of, kind of is a game changer for us, right? So this is kind of like the paranormal kind of, you know, intruding into your kind of lazy Sunday and just kind of, you know, rocking your world. Um, and then the hyper real, and this also kind of builds on the work of Robbie Graham, who wrote a book, um, The Silver Saucers and the UFOs, where he's looking at the relationship between media and UFOs and sightings and, and kind of this recursive loop. Um, and the hyper real is where the relationship between the original and the copy kind of gets inverted and you can no longer tell the difference between them or the copy becomes more real than the original. And like, there's this great example of given of this woman who sees JFK, um, you know, the walking along, like in this kind of, you know, presidential situation. And she says something like, you know, he looks as handsome as his picture. Right. So this is just an example of like where it's like, what's real is the picture. So he looks as handsome as his picture, right? So he's the copy, right? So, and we find this with in the UFO space where people watch a movie with UFOs in it. And on the one hand, they know it's fake because they know they're at the movies. On the other hand, they know it's real because they saw it in a movie. So there's a way in which seeing it in the movie reinforces both your sense that it's fake and your sense that it's real, right? And so this is part of the doubleness that, and this is kind of like the, the, the matrix, right? And kind of what you're pointing to in this post truth. It's like, it's, it's both. It's somehow it's both more real and, and more fake because I saw it in a movie and the way it kind of goes into our, our, our mental processing. And then also there's a way in which real UFO sightings have influenced what goes into the movies. And then the movies that we watch influence how we interpret and make sense of real UFO sightings, right? So then you have these cognitive and cultural frames, and this is part of the mutual enactment hypothesis. So it's not that it's more dynamic than saying like there's a real UFO, right? And then I'm viewing it as a person on the ground and, and seeing it like it's a singular object in the sky. It's much more interesting than that. It's like somehow I'm participating and experiencing myself as the UFO viewing me and I'm both the UFO and I'm not. And the UFO is a physical real object and it's imaginal, subtle, energetic phenomena that's in part created by the collective consciousness of the whole planet. And it also has beings in it from, you know, some nearby solar system, right? And so it's kind of like somehow all of those things, it's like a multidimensional object. And so you can't just reduce it to like a nuts and bolts craft in the sky that we are deeply in participation. We are mutually enacting the UFO and the UFO 
is mutually enacting us. Like we're a projection of the UFO. Like we're a simulation that the UFO is creating and we're creating the UFO as, you know, so there's a much more interesting topography, I believe, around the relationship between mind and matter, between the I, we, and it, between self and other, that it's it's a much more dynamic ontological dance than what we've come to realize. And and part of what I'm wanting to do is like get in there and play and explore that. And then the other one is the hypo real that Sentis talks about, which is where an original object or phenomenon, you know, is not amendable to current representations, right. And does not conform to our individual reference points. So this is like things like hyper, you know, you know, hyper reality like people on dmt will talk about things being more real in in that space than this space like so so that's interesting somehow they're in an altered state which is a hallucination but they're having the experience that something is more real than when they come back to this particular simulation so so that's right and then also it's like these phenomena are so strange we don't know how to make sense of it so we fill in the blanks so then you get screen memories where someone has a bizarre encounter with a gray alien and what they remember is they hit a deer on the road with their car and they drove off the road and they're missing an hour of time because of this accident when in fact like they got abducted but they're having a screen memory because they're trying to process the weirdness of it right you know so so there's a way in which the hypo real is basically when we experience something we just don't have a reference point and so it's hypo real and and then we're kind of filling in the blanks cognitively yeah you know this this feels like personal sharing time now. Oh, Cause, good. Yeah, because I think I don't know if I ever told you this story, but I've definitely brought it up in episode thirty seven when I was talking to my buddy Michelangelo, uh, where he where he called me. The guy he's, into the painting? No, not that one. Um, he, he's the ungoogleable Michelangelo. His Michael Jacobs, who has a, a great a great podcast called Self Portraits as Other People, um, where he he's an actor. And so he takes on all sorts of different identities. He had Stuart Davis on and they had an awesome conversation about embodying multiple different versions of like a diffracted selves in their in their creative projects. You know, he's he's one of these sort of spectral, almost like Jim Carrey or Robin Williams esque people who can just sort of shift through persona. And anyway, he he and I were talking about what he called Paisley ontology, which was sort of like excavating what you just described as the hyper real, yeah. but in a way that challenges and any sort of attempt to simplify it as a social construction or, or, you know, yeah. mental fabrication. And so one of the things that I, t- I told him was the story about how very early in, in the relationship with my now wife back in 2007, she and I took acid together and I, I had a kind of integral theory inspired experiment that I ran very early in the trip. I was still dealing with a dream, a very difficult dream I had where I had gone to the the bardo between lives. I had died and I was meeting all of my other friends in this soul cohort in the employees only lounge of some truck stop where like, you know, like the, the glittering world of all the distractions, there's like all the candies and stuff. Yeah. And then you get into the back and it was like, it was like a, a motel room for a, a truck driver back there. And all my friends were so excited to go reincarnate into human existence. And I told them, I was like, I can't, you guys, like, I'm just not compatible with, you know, human incarnation. I have to remain here in this. And it's very tragic because I loved being a human and I'm sorry I can't join you. And I sort of fainted tragically onto what I 
expected to be the bed and it was just that like nasty business length carpet going up into a box so i still fell and hit it and it was like this whole thing of like well i can't i can't be embodied and yet here i am still sort of like inescapably constrained by some some kind of physicality that i don't completely understand and can't get along with and so i was still like struggling to make sense of this dream when she and i took this acid and I was feeling very sort of dissociated from myself and, and sort of longing a deeper sense of embodiment. And I was wearing a shirt with this angel on it. There was basically like two balloons, two red balloons with eyes that were just sort of like, you know, my own sort of discarnate witnessing perspective. And she was wearing a shirt that she had screen printed with a squid. Mm. on it and i was like oh well the squid you know what a sensuous creature why don't you and i switch t-shirts and maybe i'll like catch a a contact buzz off of the sensuousness that you naturally embody Mm. and then you will get some sort of halo or whatever and it worked i immediately felt like i was like the kraken Wow. And who knows, you know, like this is all this up to this point, this could all have been just me sort of fooling myself. But then something happened in that and a circuit had closed. Mm. And this is before I had ever read anything about egregores or tulpas or any of the class of phenomena that we're talking about here. I had that year had a series of very compelling alien encounters with a couple different groups of friends that I, I talk a little bit about, I think in episode 105, but I'd be glad to, I'll tell Stu all about it on his show next week when I'm, I'm sitting in on his show. But you know, you and I ought to really at some point, you know, really dive into the, the like first hand encounter stuff. Yeah. But um, at any rate, so like after switching these shirts, I felt the sort of in the eruption or involution of, of like a, a third presence that was, that I, I was immediately sure was both us and not us yeah. that we had created and was creating us. Mm. And it appeared to me in the form of what I, what I came to call the angel squid, which was like immediately like a romance precipitated a narrative of like these two, like the two shirts fell in love, but mm. they were, they had to meet at the surface of the, the water's edge. It was like a, like a star crossed kind of thing, but their offspring showed up like the sentinels do to Neo in the third matrix film where he's seeing the sentinels with his, his third eye. And they're these, glorious golden cybernetic sort of subtle bodies and i immediately recognized this also as perhaps the basis like that was my cultural interpretation but it could easily have been my interpretation of the same phenomenon that manifests in hinduism as the center of the planet the god with the hundred arms you know and and it felt both transcendent and also subterranean, which again, as you know, is a, is a very persistent feature of a lot of these UFO phenomena is that they have like underwater or underground bases. They're flying in and out of the volcano in Mexico city, et cetera. And you know, my, my buddy Skytree, uh, Evan Snyder, who was the original co-host for this show is uh, just finished an album infraplanetary 
Yeah. So like I'll, 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 uh, I'll put a track from his album, his first single at the, at the end of this, uh, you know, in honor of, of his, his weird contributions to all of this. But at any rate, yeah, the angel squid immediately started manifesting itself in synchronicities that were very difficult to write off. You know, we told our, her mother that we had sort of decided on the angel squid as a mascot after Google searching angel squid, just to see what would come up to see if it had any basis in reality. Mm. And the search results were copious and bizarrely personal. And, (laughs) and, (laughs) and the thing that was most kind of memorable about that whole moment of, of observing this was that at the time my iTunes, which was on shuffle, pulled up Bjork's modern things in mm. which she says like all of the modern things have always been there in a mountain waiting for us. Wow. You know, like it was speaking directly to this whole thing about their autonomy, their sovereignty, that this thing, that this thing sort of did, you know, transcend any kind of linear imagination to form narrative. Yeah. And it haunted us. It, it What I did not say in episode 37 was that the angel squid continued to influence us for years and years. And we told my mother-in-law about it. And she like the next day found a pewter figurine of an angel squid, a pendant, (laughs) like a squid with angel wings. (laughs) <laughs> at a thrift store and bought it for us. Oh my and God. then, and then my wife started wearing it all the time. And then it started, I started to feel like maybe this was the unborn spirit of like a child that wanted to come through. And we had a lot of relationship issues for years, you know, long distance and, you know, very difficult time of our life. And, there was a long time when I wanted to banish this thing because I felt like it had more autonomy than we did, that it was holding us together against our will. And so, you know, one time I remember this was actually uh, 11 years ago this week. I was, I was with some friends and I felt what I, for the first time I, uh, when I was without her, I felt as though this thing had sort of like shown up to visit me. Like I could sense it over my shoulder and I was like, Hey, fuck off. You know, go away. Like, I don't want you around anymore. And I had a very kind of terrifying experience where it felt like, you know, like the hooks in the tentacle of a squid had like wrapped into my shoulder. And I experienced physical pain from uh, this felt presence as though it were like digging in like an eagle or something into my shoulder and it wouldn't let go until I took a pen and paper. And this sounds psychotic, but I had to take a pen and paper and write, I'm sorry. And then the pain went away. Wow. And then, so just to wrap this story. Yeah. It's like this thing has stuck around. And then years later, when we, when I had sort of convinced myself that maybe what I should do is banish it. And this is kind of a story for another time, but Nikki and I had decided that maybe we should just sort of get back into that space, that state, and roto-root this thing out, that it was causing us problems. But then I had this other trip in 2017 where I had a kind of a stroke of insight that rather than just banishing this thing, which was clearly a part of us in some deep way, and, you know, I didn't, you know, would probably create uh, trauma of some kind if we were to succeed in banishing it. I managed to intentionally reproduce this sort of accidental ceremony and create another one 
of a different kind. You know, I was just like, oh, we can just combine any two things. So that was the day that we intentionally created the unicorn owl, which had its own nexus of synchronicities around it, equally impressive and bizarre. And so, you know, I guess in a way, like that's sort of my advice. I don't know. There's a lot of like potential advice in there, but like, I guess it was interesting because it was one of these things where it's like, it was just a 10 year arc of weird explorations in which it started with a mistake and it ended with a very like intentionally designed experiment that, that did actually reproduce the results. Right. You know? So, wow. There you go. Thank you. There, there's so much there. Um, it also reminds me of Hellier. I don't know if you've watched that show. Oh yeah, I actually yeah. mean to get the 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 host. Dana and um, we're actually yeah, Dana, uh, yeah. The, oh, and uh, Greg, Greg actually agreed to be on Future Fossils, but I haven't followed up on that. So yeah. yeah, I mean, theirs is a great like story of this mutual enactment hypothesis and just these boundaries. And what I love about the angel squid, one is just it's a hybrid right? As is the owl unicorn. So hybridity shows up a lot because hybridity is an example of doubleness, right? And the sketch that you've given of your ongoing encounters and explorations with the angel squid, just in the last few minutes is enough to really illustrate all the different points on the ontological spectrums that I was talking about before, right? So if we think about the station spectrum, like this phenomenon moved back and forth from subjective to interobjective, the environment showing up the synchronicities as the pin in the thrift shop to objective to intersubjective, you know, like, so like it was like moving along that whole spectrum. Same with the sovereignty spectrum. Like it was non-autonomous. Often there were semi-autonomous moments. There were times when it was autonomous and you were non-autonomous. It's like, so like you were in this dynamic process where when it had more autonomy, you had less, right? And, you know, in, in different complex ways. And then with the substance um, spectrum, you know, in terms of the, the body, right, causal light, just more of like a high-end archetype, you know, then subtle energetic, then grabbing you, you feeling it physically, you know, and then just like the writing and, you know, like just all those different layers. Like it just highlights the, the multiple ways in which there is a dialogue happening between multiple types of intelligences. And and maybe it's just you in deep conversation with yourself, right? You know, in some sense, right? Because this is the other thing that shows up. You know, I talk about three major liminal boundaries that seem to repeat in the context of doubleness. One is the inside-outside, you know, subject-object, mind-matter. So that boundary gets all blurry. You can't tell what is what. And then there's the self-other boundary that gets all blurry, right? This also shows up with channelers, like a lot of times channelers who have been at it for a while, at a certain point, they realize and start to share with their audiences that the main entity they're channeling is actually a future version of themselves from another timeline in another dimension, right? And that's partly why they're able to channel that being because there's like a karmic soul link between that being and themselves. And so they kind of have more you know, access to connect with that version of themselves, right? And so what's interesting here is like, on the one hand, it's a separate entity that lives on another timeline, another dimension, totally separate. And yet it's also you, another version of yourself. So it's like, where do you draw that line? Like, what's you, what's not you? So the self-other boundary is one of the liminal boundaries of doubleness. And then the third, which could also be three and four, is basically time and space. That time and space gets all wacky and weird, right? And so essentially this is like, 
the I, we, and it of liminal boundaries, right? Like, and so in this sense, it's like Wilbur's quadrants just become this, you know, like they get so intermixed and, you know, it's just like what ends up. It's like when you're a scuba diver and you're about, you know, 50 feet down and you get disoriented, you don't know which way to go to get up, right? So this angel squid example is so fascinating because it really highlights all these different ways in which, you know, these dynamics of realness are at play and you can't really even understand it by approaching it from, is it real or unreal? That, that doesn't even honor the phenomenon that like that there, there's somehow that's it's, it's, I don't even know how to describe it. It's kind of like, you, you, like, uh, like, no, like, <laughs> like, like real, 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 but then question mark. You know, like, mm. what are we talking about? Like, what is this? You know, what what is the nature, the ontological nature of the angel squid you know, or the owl unicorn? It's so cool. Yeah. So, you know, just um, because I, I guess it's worth mentioning that, like I said, I, you know, I always felt that this entity, I suspected that this entity might be some kind of emanation of or instance of or, uh, you know, prophecy of a child that we in some sense expected or or were felt like we were supposed to have and that that was sort of where its autonomy was was constraining us right. and then you know the 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 unicorn owl i felt very strongly immediately after running that particular experiment that we had sort of shifted things from an emphasis on a child that we were not having. And it was attached to this painful history of possible mm -hmm. futures that we never achieved yeah. to a child that we still could have. And that I felt like, Oh, instead of it being a, a, a male child, it's now a female child. And mm -hmm. I felt very strongly immediately upon that, having that experience, Oh, we're going to have a little girl. And then we did. And the first day I went to the art supply store after she was born, I found a beanie baby of a unicorn owl with like a glittery gold horn. And we had moved to New Mexico in order to have this child. And the little tag on the thing said that its name was Enchanted, as in like the, the land of enchantment, and that it was born on 325, which was like precisely between when she was due and when she was actually born. Oh, wow. And, you know, what? Yeah. So, you know, I don't know. I guess this is all to say that, like you have already noted, there is a temporal dimension to a lot of these experiences. And, you know, I've been watching Dark on Netflix, yeah. which I, I guess you've seen it. The um, first season, I'm oh my god! It continues to become like the most intricate Celtic knot of mm. temporal interrelationships that I have ever seen in any kind of narrative form, and it really speaks to this whole idea of the time loop and like future events causing past events so that the only way you can understand it is to sort of like slice through it orthogonally and look at it all of time as occurring at once that there is like the eternal dimension in which all of the, you know, past, present and future are simultaneous. And so I'm really curious what your thoughts are on that because ostensibly this is a show about time and that, that feels like a good place to like, if when, when I say like, let's tie a bow on it, I guess what I mean is let's tie, you know, a bow made of time loop Mobius strips right. on this conversation with your thoughts on, on that very thing on the way that so many of 
of these these UFO encounters are about the denizens of potential futures coming back into our what we think of as our present in order to affect themselves. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a very common theme that shows up over and over again in a lot of different ways to the point where you have to take it seriously. You have to really open up. And and so many of our best movies, and like you're saying with Dark, like are the ones that play with time. Because I think there's a way in which we we recognize those those films and those literatures are like portals into a deeper resonant understanding of the loopiness of time. And and so there's we're drawn to it for some reason. You know, and it's like also like this example of the angel squid is like this fascinating multidimensional object, right? And both in time and space. And like, on the one hand, you know, it might've started out as like some kind of like hybrid archetype. And then it like took on a Tulpa-esque quality. And then like some other entity like inhabited that energetic form to like engage and play and enjoy. And then like your potential unborn son connected to it. And then, you know, so it's kind of like, it's not that the, the, the angel squid is a singular phenomena in time and space. It's almost like it, it is a container for potentially between two and 10 different types of non-human intelligences dancing with each other at different points. And, and then at a certain point it flipped and then it's, you know, the the hit I got was the owl unicorn was because the that was then the daughter that was born, not the son. That's the, you know, angel squid. Right. And so then that's weird and interesting, you know, kind of like what was going on with that? You know, and so so I think, you know, and there's this great book by Eric Wargo of Time Loops. We had him on the show. It's actually the most popular episode of Future Fossils by Download Count. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So, so and like, you know, that is just fascinating. That's like, especially like when you look at like the micro time loops, like, cause we often think of time loops and kind of these bigger, like the aliens coming from a thousand years in the future, coming back to try and save humanity, which is themselves from some environment. You know, we, we often think of time loops in these really big temporal horizons, but I think just as fascinating, if not more, is is the micro time loops and the ways in which that's happening on much smaller scales all the time. And then if you kind of extrapolate that out to the large, you know, like it's just like it's a total clusterfuck, you know. So I think time and space is just wacky. Um, and this is why, you know, whether you're talking about the fairy abductions, you know, fairy lore um, or UFO abductions or people encounter, sat, you know, like almost most many, many encounters with the paranormal involve time dilation in one direction or another, as well as weird space things happening. So the fact that the paranormal seems to be completely wrapped up with time and space and that the realities of these phenomena seem to be intricately tied to time loops and space loops, I think to me is part of the... I don't know. It's like, it's like the puncture into the nature of reality that like, like they're that, that these things are overlapping concurrently and simultaneously. And it's like, we are in a, in a simulation, but who cares? Like I have the experience of loving my daughters. To me, that is exquisite, right? I have the experience of heartbreak, you know, from past relationships. I have the experience of being, you know, a face plant when Meta Integral fell apart in 2015, you know, like, like 
I don't care that I'm in a simulation because this is fascinating. Like, this is like, this is really good, you know, like, and even if free will is an illusion, like, well, I can do my meditation practice and I can have the experience of, you know, objectifying my habitual patterns and being more free of them. So like, if that's all part of the simulation, so be it. Right. So I find the whole like simulation thing, like, because it's like when we say it's a simulation in a way, what we're saying is this is fake. Right. Mm. But it's not. This is real, even if it's a simulation, right? We get back to the hyper real, right? Where the copy and the and the the original, like which one's more real? Like, is it the simulation less real because it's a simulation? Like, why is it we feel like somehow we we're getting the raw end of the deal if we're in a simulation? You know, like why not be like we? This is the lottery, man. We're in a simulation. <laughs> like it, this is like totally fascinating, right? Is, I don't get a sense that we're limited in terms of the rules of the simulation. Like I get we're you know walking you know zombies in terms of our habitual patterns and our delusions, but even within that, there's interesting creative agency that seems possible. Um, so I don't know, I'm willing to pony up and, and put another, you know, you know, round in and, and see what happens. You know, that's, I think why I can't stop talking about it. Blade Runner 2049 is such a radical film in terms of its treatment of personhood and, and who deserves human rights. Because, you know, the first movie, it's like, oh, you know, it has that very naive, real non-real distinction and you know even phil dick was like no the replicants are not human beings you know but then blade runner 2049 turns that all on its head and you don't only get your your character is a blade runner and a replicant but you get that he's in a relationship with a hologram that doesn't even have a body you know and that that ends up being the most beautiful heartfelt relationship in the entire the most human relationship more human than any of the relationships in the film that you see between legal humans. Right. You know, and so this is exactly, you know, to your point about how it's time for us to expand these definitions. I guess where I'd like to end this is since, since I've like, I've uh, put myself under the wheels of whatever critical truck might roll under this conversation. You know, I tend to ask people at the end of these episodes to, engage in a sort of imaginative exercise about a conversation with their future self, but something tells me that you actually have these conversations. Right. And I'm, I'm curious if you're willing to share any of that. Yeah. I what, will. what kind of experiences you've had firsthand with, you know, a, a dialogue with future Sean or Sean's future possible Sean's whatever, how you ever you, you do that. Yeah. Great. Uh, we'll, we'll end on a doozy here. Before I go into that, I'll just say that this just building on what you're saying right before you gave that invitation about talking with my future self. What came to me is the sense of this is what I am excited about with the post-truth era, because I feel the post-truth era is actually deconstructing our real unreal frame. And and as frustrating and kind of disorienting as the post-truth, and, and there's a lot of downside to it, if I was to point to a potential upside is that I think it paves the way towards a multidimensional reality, right? Or at least it has that potentiality, right? And that there's a way in which it's, it's, it's forcing us to reconsider what is real and how do we defend what is real and how do we even identify what is real. And I don't think the, the ultimate response or answer to that is going back to 
uh, scientific materialism that has ruled the day for the last three to 600 years. I think that might be the case initially, like with COVID, where we have to kind of run back to good old science to kind of figure things out. I think the bigger play is that post-truth is opening up to multidimensionality. Um, and I think part of that's because we're also moving into a galactic era as humans. And so I think there's, you know, when you talk about the exponential growth of AI and other things that are happening right now in surveillance states, I think, I think we're headed towards uh, a, an understanding of the real in a multidimensional way. So that being said, um, yes, I've had an experience um, in a kind of a, a meditative mode where I connected with what I consider a parallel self. That that was the experience um, that was happening. Was It was like, if I was to try and describe what it was, it was like, um, it was a parallel self, but what was confusing was it was a mantis being and um, on a ship, and that the mantis being that I was connecting with as myself um, had lived for several thousand years and was going to live for several more thousand years. So at the same time, in relationship to Sean, the embodied ego, this was a past life as well as a future life. Mm -hmm. Because self as the mantis being, the lifespan is much bigger than the, you know, 70 to 120 years that I'm going to have. So it was a very interesting experience to connect with this parallel self who has a very different embodied physical energetic existence in terms of a lifespan that totally messes with my sense of my own lifespan right so so to connect with a being that was simultaneously a present parallel self a past self and a future self to this incarnation and then the other thing that came through in that encounter and in a sense that kind of i wouldn't say a conversation but it was kind of like this mind meld thing was that myself as the mantis being is is in a sense a much is not is a is a non contracted expression of awareness, whereas Sean as an embodied being on this planet is struggling between moments of being really contracted and moments of being free and open and grounded and present. And so there was a way in which it was like connecting with a more enlightened self. And so it was also strange to, to, in a sense, feel how fucked up I am as Sean and how compared to this other expression of myself, which really doesn't have any of that garbage or those dynamics or those tensions or contradictions in it in the same way. That's not to say that as the mantis being, I don't have shadow or other, you know, growing edges or something. I don't know. But, but there was like something in the juxtaposition of, of feeling how as, as this, and then it was also the sense of triangulating and realizing that I was actually, I'm, I'm not just the mantis being, but I'm more than the mantis being that there's this, what you might call an oversoul that actually chooses to incarnate and manifest through multiple um, embodied expressions, one of which is a multi-centennial, you know, thousand-year-old, you know, <laughs> mantis being, and one is me right now. And so it was also interesting to just get the sense of, of realizing that in my purest state, I'm totally not contracted. And yet in my embodied experience here, I, I go in and out of contraction all the time. So there was just something fascinating about that. You know, it was like 
realizing that I'm already enlightened and I'm totally not enlightened, right? Like there's some mm-hmm. aspects of my soul nature that transcend this particular biographical journey that I'm on. And as per so much of the literature, it's like I'm in this journey because there's actually something very powerful about being contracted and about struggling with that and trying to overcome that and being compassionate towards other people in the face of their contractions, right? And having my own contractions as a way of understanding why other people have their contractions, right? Right. So, so it was really bizarre experience of kind of connecting with my future, past, present, non-self. Um, so I'll leave it at that. That's a great place to leave it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Sean, thank you for joining me for this and, and us for this slice of our frequently contracted journey through a vector that, you know, may or may not be wrapped around on itself and is and is not. And, and, uh, I, you know, your, your work is, I think, as I've said several times already, just really, really useful for people who have been like myself trying very, very hard to, to make sense of these experiences for a very long time and struggling with an unfortunate tendency to attempt to reduce it to one thing or another, you know, and um, I really hope that the listeners of the show are inspired to, to follow you Mm. on your continued explorations of this. Where would you send people if they want to go deeper with you on this? Yeah. So, so thank you. It's always a pleasure to dance with you, Michael, in our multidimensional selves. And yeah, for people who want to connect or, you know, dive into what I'm doing, they can go to exo, E-X-O, studies, um, dot org. And there's, you know, a number of things there, including, you know, the paper that I've just mentioned, the Our Wild Cosmos, so people can download that. I'm also starting a year-long program in September on ExoStudies where we're going through these 42 crazy topics. So you can see what those topics are and what the books are that I'll be drawing from. And and then for people who are interested in my other more conventional work in working with multiple forms of capital and creating new economic models, that can be found at metaintegral.com. So thank you, Michael. Really good to be here with you tonight. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. Cheers. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We covered a lot of ground in that episode, but I want to call back to a couple other future fossils that we mentioned, including episode 37 with Michelangelo, episodes 60 and 113 with Sean S. Bjorn Hargens, episode 91 with my science fiction story and oral history of the end of reality, episode 117 with Eric Wargo on time loops, and the last episode we did, 149, with Derek. Sohei and Tata Hazumi and Naomi Most on cultural somatics, which gets a little bit more into this issue of the egregore or the tulpa and this question of mutual enactment. We go really deep with that, and I deeply enjoyed that conversation. Also, I had a number of really excellent episodes of Future Fossils with J.F. Martell, co-host of the Weird Studies podcast, on which I appeared in episode 26. And uh, JF and Phil Ford were on Future Fossils for 126 of this show. 
So if you really want to go deeper into the weird, that's a great place to start, as well as episodes 99 and 132 with Eric Davis, uh, one of the high priests of weird studies. He is just one of my great inspirations, and it's been a pleasure to have him go into his work and his MIT Press book, High Weirdness on Future Fossils. Again, feel free to reach out to me at any time, Twitter, Instagram, or email. I hope to see you in the Future Fossils Discord server or in our conversation on patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. And with that, I'm going to ring you out with a new tune by my friend and original Future Fossils co-host, Evan Skytree Snyder who is just about to release his first new LP in some time. He's one of my favorite electronic musicians, and his new album, Infraplanetary, is very, very apropos as a sign-off for that awesome conversation. So here you are. Enjoy the first single off of Skytree's new album, Infraplanetary, which you can pre-order at skytree.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and enjoy.